0: Hi, I'm saxophonist Oliver Koenig. Mike Lee introduced me to the language of jazz, showing me the first record I ever transcribed and learned, Sonny Stitt playing Lester Peeps in. Since then, Mike has shown me everything from how to navigate the saxophone to how to articulate in any context. Mike has spent years on the scene in New York and New Jersey. He's a professor of jazz saxophone at the John J. Kelly School of Music at Montclair State University, and you can always find him on the gig. Recently. I talked with Mike about his life in performance and education. The stories he was able to share and the insights he gave proved to be invaluable. I thought you'd enjoy our recent chat about performance and education in jazz. So what was your first exposure to jazz?
1: My first exposure was uh, when I was in the D band of of, uh, Roxborough Junior High School in Cleveland Heights, Ohio in seventh grade. My, uh, I, I was playing saxophone, in, in the band, and my buddy had was getting lessons outside of school, and so he had connected me with his teacher, a wonderful man named Al Blazer. When I started studying with him, he, he thought I had a knack for it, and, and my, the buddy who had introduced me, gave me a, a cassette tape that had Carmen McRae on one side and Here Comes Charlie L. Fitzgerald on the other side, and that was my real. Uh, exposure and, and we were also way into the Maynard Ferguson big band that was the other mm-hmm. exposure I had to it at that.
0: once you got into it in in junior high school what was your experience with learning the music in like an educational standpoint like how was it compared to maybe what it is today
1: well I mean there was there was almost no jazz education you know it was, I, I would go to I would go to jazz concerts like outdoor concerts at first when I was real little and I try to talk to them and they'd be, and, and the cats would always say like, yeah, man, just listen, just listen. And I'm like, I'm listening all the time and I can't do that. And it was very, it was frustrating, but I think it also caused me and, and people in my generation to have a certain ownership that sometimes we wish that, that our students now wouldn't look to us for so many answers, but go to the
0: the recordings. So it was about it was about listening and and seeking out those records. Listening,
1: transcribing, you know, then you'd have, you know, you just have one person tell you, "Oh, well this is a 251," and another person say, "This is a scale." And you, you know, the all the theoretical knowledge was so hodgepodge and it was just what you could retain and understand and how you processed the information was just as individual as your voice, you know. Mm-hmm. I think it was it was a, one of the advantages of of that period is you really had to come up with your own methodology.
0: So, so that independence almost helped you develop creative independence.
1: Just... I th- I think so. I think it also is is one of the reasons why I'm perceived as someone who's good at teaching. Is <laughs> because mm-hmm. I had to I had to figure out how to teach it. I I remember being so frustrated because I wasn't I wasn't an ear player like some of my friends that were, and I really had to figure it out. And I remember mm-hmm. being very frustrated and kind of promising myself if I ever can figure this out, I'm going to be able to explain it.
0: During that process, at what point did, did, you, did you actually think about wanting to do it professionally and actually wanting to pursue a career?
1: I don't know. I mean, I think it was, it was pretty early on. I mean, by the time I was in 11th grade, I was so certain about what I wanted to do that I chose to graduate early. So certainly by 11th grade, I think 10th grade, I was, I was getting pretty serious. I yeah. think I'd gone to a, a Jamie Abersold camp. And I think that that environment, like that camp environment of being around a bunch of other kids that were really into it, and then yeah. a bunch of college kids that were into it, and then being around—well, my current my teacher at that time was teaching there, Howie Smith, and I think Dave Lieben was there, and and I think by then I was kind of inspired and knew that's what I wanted to do.
0: So that sounds like it was a more structured version of jazz education in its it, early stages, almost.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, I, I had the good fortune of of having a theory class with David Baker, who was one of the first icons of jazz education you know what was interesting about that it was it was still very personal like you go you go to Dave Liebman's class and you get a completely different mm-hmm. take on things.
0: Once you were in college and you were really trying to pursue this career professionally what brought you to New York?
1: When I moved back to Cleveland after two years in Cincinnati so I was about 20 and I was gigging a lot and mm-hmm. I was playing you know I was playing not just jazz gigs but some of the best most of the best jazz players in town and you mm-hmm. know and and it was, it was gratifying in a certain way, but I also I got the feeling like I'm not that good. Like, there's, there's something wrong here. Like, I shouldn't be being looked at this way. And I got the notion that I need to go to New York to kind of have my head shrunk a little bit and, and get a perspective on what cats that were really playing sounded like.
0: Like you needed a change of environment for the sake of creative development. Along yeah,
1: I mean, there was, I mean, Cleveland was a great scene, and, and, the, and the players there were brilliant. I played with people, people like Lamar Gaines and Neil Creaky. You know, brilliant. But, I mean, my first night in New York, walking to a, a jam session at the Star Cafe and having some guy bump into my s- saxophone kind of violently and turning around and, and realizing that he bumped into me because his vision was... I think he was blinded by that point. It was It was Woody Shaw and then Junior Cook's running the jam session and there's this young cat named Kenny Garrett playing alto. You know, it's like totally different.
0: So moving there, did have that anticipated effect. Oh, yeah. Within minutes. I mean, that yeah. was my
1: first night. <laughs> the New York jazz scene is the same size as every other scene in the world combined.
0: What brought you to teaching and what brought you to explore that?
1: I enrolled at NYU briefly. Kind of cool. I mean, I, I had a band with and was roommates with Dave Douglas. And I was technically studying with Joe Lovano through NYU. But what led me to teaching was, you know, at least a decade later, when the first time I sat in, in, in front of a group of college-age kids and talked about music and talked about improvisation, there was just a flow to it that just felt like that's what I was supposed to be doing. I, I lived in New York for about four years, then moved back to Cleveland, got married. Rebecca and I moved uh, back to Brooklyn. It was in that time that I started to... Um, you know, look towards booking things beyond New York and, and 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 taking care of my career that way. And right at the time, my oldest son, Julian, yeah, about the time he was born, I'd been doing, i have been working as a word processor. I got laid off for no, for absurd reason. And I was like, okay, this is ridiculous. I'm starting, I'm starting a family now. I don't really want to be doing this. So I got very serious about trying to do bookings. Hmm. And right at that time, I, I started to tour with Joe Lovano, he had a project called Celebrating Sinatra. I didn't do the record and I didn't do a lot of the dates, but at one point I joined the, the tour and we were, we were playing a lot of dates in and around the United States. And I kinda had a mechanism of calling universities and clubs. So I was like, hey, I'm gonna be out there with Joe Lovano. Would you like me to present a masterclass while I'm there? It clicked and I, I ended up, I was, I was like, I'm gonna book a two week tour in January. The tour ended up being two full months. It was 61 days. Wow. Yeah, and I toured all over the midway. I went all the way out to Colorado and back driving. It just extended, it took on a life of its own. I'd play local clubs, but it, it quickly became apparent to me that, the, you know, the clubs, it seemed like the going rate to play at a club would be make a hundred dollars for a four-hour gig, or I can I could get four hundred dollars for a one-hour clinic. <laughs> uh-huh. Financially, the master classes really started to take the the foreground as, as the real money makers, mm-hmm. and I did a lot of that, and it was it was very interesting because at the time I was I was living in New York, but you know it didn't feel like my career was really flowing, and when I got out there on the road and the kids would argue about who was going to pick me at the airport and they wanted to pick my brain and ask me these kind of questions, <laughs> you know it was like that was the first time there was like any any sense that anything I was doing had an impact on you know anyone besides you know my very small inner circle
0: um and you realized that you were really impacting your students
1: yeah it was teaching and performing and and you know teaching as a performing artist and that that Mm -hmm. was really important but i i started to understand when when i started to teach here my home base by teaching at montclair state and teaching at jazz house kids that i was only really effective when i was gigging a lot and Anytime I felt like my career was moving to being primarily an educator, I, I became less effective because I wasn't, it wasn't real. Like when mm-hmm. someone like you was coming into, into my studio, I think yeah. you wanted to know that, yeah, I just, I just did a gig with Roy Hargrove. I just yeah. did a tour with, with Wallace Roney. You, that, that's what makes the difference. And mm-hmm. that's where I'm learning the lessons that I'm trying to pass on.
0: And you've actually mentioned this before, kind of uh, that essential to being a good teacher is having spent time and spending time actively focusing on jazz performance. And you actually said once in another interview um, that it's necessary to put your art ahead of your material comfort. And so I, I was going to ask what, what you've what you've kind of gained from 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 that from that like philosophy and focusing on performance, what and whatever whatever situation that may leave you in and and what you've like, uh, gained in in value from that mindset and that experience.
1: I mean, it's, it's, it's a general philosophy of life. I think is that, you know, as we look to be comfortable, we're not necessarily looking to be our best selves. It's really, it's, but it's really important to me to be in motion, to be out in the world. I I'm weird. I love to travel. I love trains, planes, hotel rooms. I, I don't know why, but I think that's really essential to to feeling fulfilled and valued as mm-hmm. as a human being. And it's really easy to get pigeonholed. Like once someone finds out that you can you'll show up on time, that you can speak in front of a group of children appropriately,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that suddenly that, that takes a certain value and it's like, yeah, but I'm still sitting in at Smalls, I'm still out on the scene, I'm still I'm still seeing my my career as moving forward. Yeah, and that's, I think that's that's just essential. And you know, when I'm feeling valued as a performing musician, the experience of of, of teaching is is amazing. Mm-hmm. To have young people look at you—that's that's what i was talking about. My first tours to have these young people look like with bated breath. All of a sudden, I saw myself from just a few years earlier when Joel yeah. Lovano would come and do a clinic, being on the other side of it and seeing people that are hanging on. You i mean it's an honor it's an honor and 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 if it's when I don't see it that way, it's usually because there's an imbalance and i'm not yeah. I'm not feeling fulfilled as a performer
0: so during those times that that you're that you're doing both performance and 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 you're teaching at the same time and it's and it seems to be kind of feeding off each other and and creating this like uh kind of very like successful process, what is it exactly that you're, um, how are you integrating the stuff that you, you've learned on the bandstand and that you're like, uh, using in, in your, in your performance gigs? Like, how are you integrating that into your teaching?
1: I, I guess the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that is, is the amount of energy. So you've seen me at noon at an improvisation class, many, many Sundays, you know, when that's coming off of me being at a gig until 1am 2am you know getting in at 3am yeah and having just a few hours of sleep and getting there or as as you saw this time a lot of cases getting off a plane
0: mm-hmm.
1: but i had just been in jacksonville or san francisco or you know australia or wherever wherever i was sharing the music with people it 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 gives it it's this difference in energy mm-hmm. it just gives it a certain kind of urgency like you guys can learn this you know 12 bar melody Do you know how many melodies I had to learn so that I could do this? You know, Mm -hmm. like this is, so there's, there's a certain joy. And for me, this is life. Yeah. And it's, it's not just my life, but you, you, you've grown up around my kids. You see, it's my kid's life. Yeah. All three of them are real serious about performing. My wife is a very serious performer. It's, it's an energy that we live in.
0: Can you talk about how these gigging experiences have have led you to like expand w- what you're practicing and then and then what you're bringing to your students be- because you need to have this kind of flexibility with growing a repertoire
1: Every every musician I play with regularly um, um, for instance I work a lot with the, the great pianist uh, Nat Adelie Jr. and Nat Adelie Jr. was the musical director for Luther Vandross so there's a lot of that music that he performs and then a lot of the tunes from Cannibal's uh, repertoire, and then also just things he likes, as, loves as a pianist. So we do a lot of Herbie Hancock and and Korea tunes. We are improvising multiple courses all the time. I mean, it's really a it's it's really a jazz workout. It's not it's not just a typical showcase singer's gig. And that that's been a revelation to me because the difference between doing three nights a week and doing five nights a week, it's like a whole other level. It's now the yeah. majority of the week. That act of memorizing repertoire. And then reactivating it. Yeah. Like, let's learn the repertoire like we have to perform it. It's the, it's the difference between a, a high school or college ensemble where you have 14 rehearsals and one performance mm-hmm. and a professional gig where you have one rehearsal and 14 performances. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just like you got to get it get it together. But I think to me the, the most important le- lesson for young musicians is that, like, sure, I'll do that as soon as I get a gig. But you have to do that before you get a gig. I started doing this before I had... Yeah. Very many gigs, or any regular gigs. I was there's a lot of gigs. I was getting, I get called a sub in once, and I wouldn't get called again, and then I have to figure out what what I was doing and, and and how to get better, so I actually get yeah get the call more than once. But you have to create a book for who you want to play
0: with. As you're learning all these tunes and, and you're growing the repertoire, it's, it sounds like you also have uh, have a few records that just very deeply influenced you.
1: The way the way Miles Group would play. Rob Midnight, for instance, is epic, and it's great to listen to it on all the different versions. When I first got got into it, I, I bought a record, I know this wasn't on the list I gave you, but I bought a record called uh, "Tower of Power," which had nothing to do with the the funk group, but was uh, Dexter Gordon's record, and actually uh, James Moody plays on a couple tunes. But there's a tune on there called "Stanley the Steamer." <laughs> I decided to learn that before anyone else told me about transcribing.
0: You showed me, some of the first licks you showed me were these, like, Dexter Gordon, these, like, minor, these minor licks that he, that he's playing on these oh. records, like, uh Go and, like... Yeah, on, know, on Cheesecake. Cheesecake. And it's these lines, two bars, two to four bars, but you can put it in, in 12 keys, and that can actually kind of get you so far. So these records, beyond just being inspirational to listen to I understand that it, it also kind of went deeper in that and that you actually um built the, the language that that's in these records built yeah, your I own I mean I
1: think I was very disciplined about taking particular phrases I remember hearing Art Blakey give a master class at NYU and he said he said the guys in my band can play rhythm changes in all 12 keys but really play but he was like Not just to play, you know, because they can sort of get through it, but they can they can play it on it in E like they're playing on it in B flat and make that much music. And that was that was very inspirational to me. It's like because I, you know, I could play Rhythm Changes in B flat, and I was like, I want to try to figure this out in other keys.
0: You mentioned on a segment on Jazz Night in America that playing with your son in saxophonist Julian Lee, uh, teaching him and just playing with him actually helped um, satisfy your own interest in continuing to learn about the music yourself, how teaching has affected your ability as a player and actually helped you develop as a musician.
1: Yeah, that's that's very true. I think when you you talk to young people and you're telling them what to do and and how to do certain things, it makes you go like, oh, maybe I should be doing more of that. Or if I'm going to talk about that, I should do that. Like, I got back into working out things in 12 Keys when I got more serious about teaching when i started to get a lot of teachers like a lot of students like yourself that were doing things at a high level that's that's inspiring to me i remember you came in and said you knew all of train solos off of, of blue train i'm like i don't know all of train solos off of blue train what's wrong with you kid and so i actually went and learned them all you know I, and uh and i think it took me longer than it took you so
0: <laughs> that was that, a summer project yeah yeah, yeah that's yeah.
1: but that's a uh, when you're talking about it, then you have to live what you're preaching. and It also opens doors for you. You know, A lot of times what I hear in students are really things that are like, I know something bothers me about a student. I have to check and see if that's, it bothers me because I really know that I do that.
0: And, and what, are, what, are, what are some of the biggest lessons that you've taken from your own teachers?
1: I've, I've known people that I've really studied with for more than a lesson or two. Um, Joe Lovano's pretty much it. And studying with him... Was remarkable because of how open he is. I mean, it almost seemed like he would he would teach in riddles, you know, in terms of of being a teacher whose whose playing flowed right into his teaching. There's almost no line when you talk about someone like Joe Lovano. It's like everything he's doing is teaching, and everything he's teaching is is performance. But I remember we were working on call Kal and he started talking about you know how how Stan Getz approached it. And I think most of us don't think of Joe Lovano as sounding like Stan Getz, but boy, if he started playing these examples and there was so much Stan Getz in what he was doing, I was, it, it that really opened my eyes to about how this person whose voice is so original is so steeped in the masters. To be the most individual usually means you're the most studied.
0: Do you think that relationship between performance, culture, and and kind of the education of this music has has changed over time, like this relationship. If it's shifted, and if you see it changing in the future,
1: being here in New York, it seems like it's still very tied together. When you leave this area, that gets difficult. Roy Hargrove was one of the great great educators, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. He taught a whole generation of New York musicians uh, repertoire, how to play, how to approach music, how to how to keep music cool, how to how to integrate current sounds and current feels while still honoring the masters. I think there's just as much of that if you're, if you're willing to find it.
0: Mm-hmm. But, but it's like you said earlier, it's the performance energizes the, the teaching. It gives, it gives life to that. It gives a reason for it. Yeah. How, how have you seen, just on a much broader scale, how, how, how have you seen access to jazz education and how have you seen that change over time and how do you see it going into the future?
1: I don't think there's a state university in the country that doesn't have some sort of a jazz, at least a, a, a you know music education with a jazz emphasis, so it's it's a completely different animal. So it's very different. I mean, the whole online thing is so different. I mean, if you listen, if you went if you went back to 1978 and found a 15 year old Mike Lee and said, "Hey, I'm gonna sit you down in front of a thing that looks like a TV with a little keyboard and you can type in any music you want to hear and it'll instantly come up and you can listen to it and you can slow it down." I'll give you a million dollars for that. that. I mean, that's it's a dream come true. And it's just like with anything. The easier it, it is to access, it can have the effect of becoming less valuable. Chris McBride has a, a, a great observation that he made to me a, a few years ago. He said, you know, back in the day, our heroes were doing studio work to supplement their jazz lives. And now all the cats are doing university work to, to supplement it. I think I'd like to see an emphasis on creating performing communities. Um, I you know I hope these little towns that have one hundred thirty million dollars to put in their music, you know can 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 find you know I don't know half a million dollars to build a structure that can have have a cafe, where the kids can play at night and have the, you know, their contemporaries or people in the community they're able to come see it. You know, the students can get used to interacting with live audiences and see what gets so, You know, everyone should have the experience of playing jazz for a crowd of people that aren't necessarily there here to, jazz, to hear jazz. Beyond, beyond just teaching notes in a classroom about how this is how you can play a solo that sounds somewhat in the style, we also want to understand that you're performing for people, you're lifting spirits, and you're lifting a community, and you're, you're, you're paying homage to a community that suffered to bring us this music but it's really something that's for the community.
0: I hope you've enjoyed my chat with Mike Lee about the relationship between performance and education in jazz. I'm Oliver Koenig. My momentum takes me to study jazz saxophone at Northwestern University this fall. My tune momentum takes you to your next destination. Thanks for listening. The Jazz Media Workshop is made possible by a generous grant from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation and is a production of WBGO Studios. To see our full lineup of shows, visit wbgo.org slash studios.